millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and does not replace your own financial, tax, legal, or financial product advice. Hello and welcome to My Millennial Property with John Pigeon and as always joined by Emily Wallace. How are you, Emily? I'm doing very well for once. Um, Victoria is actually standing pretty strong over here, so I'm very happy. It is. Yes, uh, I'm actually happy too because I jumped the border before it locked down. So I am two in Victoria, but still three hours from you. All oh, right, escapee, but you've made it to Victoria. That's good. Shout out to all the Victorians out there. Yes, yes. Going to mix it up today, aren't we? We're going to interview each other. I think it's uh, always good and we get lots of feedback saying uh, stories are awesome, uh, real life experiences are great, we can learn from them, we can take one or two things each time. So we thought, well, um, we, we definitely haven't done you. I think I've been on a previous podcast on My Millennial Money with a story of, of what uh, my property journey looked like, but um, we, we definitely haven't done yourself. So we're going to do a bit of both today and, and we'll question each other's journey and um, not question it, question it, just ask questions of the journey. And uh, and yeah, hopefully the listeners can take something away um, with, with each of them. So we're going to kick off with you today, Emily. Sure. No worries at all. All right. So I'll be the uh, interviewer. Okay. And... I want to know, you, you grew up in Tasmania, right? I did. Yes, I did indeed. So what was your money story? What was um, In your household growing up, was money spoken about at the dinner table? Was it uh, put under the table and not discussed? Um, what, what was your experience as a child? Um, quite interesting, really. So um, I grew up in a family where my dad... Uh, worked full-time. He's a, a partner at an accounting firm. Mum was a stay-at-home mum, but um, probably as us, you know, the three of us grew up, my brothers and I, she sort of went into work as well. In terms of the way money was spoken about, um, we were never, it was never in a bad light. It was never in a, we don't have enough. Um, I think very fortunate that I grew up with the mentality of that, you know, money can be made and there's smart ways to make money. My dad is a serial investor across many different joint ventures, um, the share market and a lot of commercial properties. So I've actually been exposed to that. Probably really, I probably knew that he had a number of properties. I reckon when I was like 11 or 12, I could grasp the concept of that, that he owned properties and people paid rent in them. That was about the extent of it at that age. But yeah, money was definitely spoken about um, and certainly you were encouraged to make your own money. So I got a job the day I could get a job and I I loved making my own money. Yeah, cool. So you knew your your father was some sort of entrepreneur. Um, how how much exposure did he allow you into that? Would, did did he explain to you what was happening, or was it just, oh yeah, dad does this? I know he's uh, investing in different bits and pieces, but I I was sort of oblivious to it. I think 
truly being exposed to the numbers side of things and being able to quantify that, probably not until I was in my early 20s. Um, and even more so, like I've literally just gotten back back from a trip and spending some time with him and he's, you know, breaking down the numbers on these commercial deals that he's doing. And like, it makes so much sense to me now that, you know, I'm at an age yeah. where I definitely get it and can definitely comprehend yeah. it. Um, but probably, yeah, he let me into a fair bit to understand it and to educate me on it in my early 20s when I was at uni. Cool. Okay. Awesome. So yeah, money was a was a good story for you growing up. Um, it wasn't bad. It wasn't evil. It wasn't greed. It wasn't uh, anything like that. It was it was a reasonable story from that point of view. So, um, what was your first investment when you started earning money at what was that fourteen fifteen? Yeah, fourteen and nine months. Yes. Um, so truth be told, I wasn't a very good saver. I was definitely a spender when I first got money um, because. At that age, you know, I wanted to keep up with the fashion. I wanted to keep up with with my friends and everything like that. Um, and, you know, even looking back in hindsight, because my brother is a very good saver and he works a lot. He's 21. I kind of wonder what did I actually do with the money that I earned? Then I really wasn't a very good saver. I didn't become a good saver or, or have the concept of investing my money into something greater, probably until I was 22, 23, which... I think that's just a level of maturity and a level of education more than anything. And I'm sure listeners would be somewhat the same that if they weren't taught diligent saving habits from day dot of earning money, then they might not have been able to comprehend that themselves until they're at a mature age. Mm, it's interesting, isn't it? Like I, I do so many clarity calls with really young people, or I consider young anyway, like <laughs> 19, 20, and they've got such old head on young shoulders and and they've saved massive chunks of money from the day that they started working. So I always ask the question, I'm always intrigued as to how they've set that pattern and that standard right from the word go. Um, Even though you've had an entrepreneurial, I suppose, um, surrounding growing up, you you still didn't really grasp that concept of wanting to save until your early 20s and a bit of experience, I suppose. Yeah, I think that largely comes from the fact, although dad, you know, did have that background, I spent a lot of time with mum and mum is a spender, not a saver. So, um, you know, that's, I think that's what I put it down to. But um, as to your question about my first investment, like where did I actually put my money um, once I managed to save? I did buy a property um, when I was 23, nearly 24. Okay. So that was my awesome. first true investment of putting money into something good. Okay, great. And with that first purchase, uh, a lot of investors or a lot of people buying their first home, they buy locally where they know, where they, where they feel they're comfortable doing. Uh, what, what, was it, what did it look like for you? So it was local in the sense that it was Melbourne based, but it wasn't local in the sense that I literally didn't know anything about the suburb until I educated myself. So um, for context, I live in Bayside, Melbourne in Elwood and the property is located in Melton South. It's about a 50 minute drive point to point. Um, It's not in my own backyard, so to speak. I couldn't afford that. Um, But the way I chose that, having not any professional help on board and just thinking I could do it myself, it was very lucky in so many respects because I bought into that market before it took off and I didn't know that was going to be the case. Um, I'll be honest, like it really was a fluke. Um, and the I bought it and the following year that um, the median grew by 34% in that area. Wow. So it was yeah. just nuts. Okay. I was just, yeah. So for, for listeners, what year was that? Uh, that was 2017 I bought, yeah. Okay, yeah. awesome. All right, so that was pure luck from your end. Um, did pure you... Luck. 
you did the hundred percent of the the searching and the negotiations, and and didn't require any outside assistance. I did. I did it all myself. Um, it took me about three months from the decision to buy to actually purchase. Um, yep. I became very friendly with a lot of the agents out there. I went every Saturday um, to everything that was possible to view, and I ended up getting my own off market through an agent that I'd been in contact with. Um, someone else's finance had fallen over. Well, it was off market in the sense that it wasn't publicly displayed for sale, um, but it had been previously. And it was a new build at Slab and Frame at that time. And so there were a few benefits to that. I did actually debate living in that property myself because new build and also Melton South being considered at the time uh, regional, I could have, I think it was like 25K worth of grants I could have been eligible for yep. if I lived in it, but I didn't, I didn't want to do the commute. Okay. Yeah. All right. So it was purely non-emotional. Uh, get yourself into the property market, and uh, not worry about the grants. And yeah, get get your feet on the ground in the in the property space. Yep. Hundred percent. Mm, awesome. Okay. So fast forward twelve months or so, you've you've captured some awesome growth out of that. Um, what's what was next from there? Um, before you answer that question, uh, I suppose for the listeners, we want to we'll chat a little bit about. Uh, were, were there other investments outside of property as opposed to just being a property investment journey? So I've been very heavy in property in that I've got two investments now, two investment properties, but my you know financial planner that I work with um, set up a, an automatic debit every month into a managed fund. So I do have a, a somewhat of a share portfolio, but it's just a managed portfolio um, and that's growing quite nicely. But that has only been, so I'm 28 now, that's pro- I've probably only been since I was... 27 that I've done that and started to grow that side of investment. Okay, yeah. cool. Um, so your second investment property, so fast forward from 2017, what yep. was the next property acquisition? So um, in between I started a business, which is probably an investment in itself. I had to put a lot of money into starting a business, um, which is why there's a bit of a gap. So uh, I bought my second one um, about two months ago. Um, so 2021, um, I bought a property in Gracemere, which is just outside of Rockhampton. That's a four bedroom home on 600 square meters of land. Um, cool. and that one is positively geared. Awesome. So it was a cash flow strategy from the outset. Yeah. Um, and, and what was the, uh, I suppose, uh, research behind that? Did you find that yourself? Did you engage a buyer's agent? I know you're a buyer's agent yourself, <laughs> but uh, did you outsource that side of it? I did to an and extent. The- yeah. So obviously having contacts in the industry kind of got a bit of a tip off of one that was that was there and available um, yeah. and got given a report, the numbers. I very much, I mean, obviously I buy homes, but I only buy first and family homes. I don't do investment purchases for other people. Um, And so, yeah, um, basically the numbers were laid out to me. This is an opportunity. If you want it, this is the price. This is the return. You need to act on it now. And I was like, well, cool, (laughs) let's do it. So I'd been in a buying mentality in that I was ready to buy, um, but this Mm -hmm. opportunity popped up and it was done within a week pretty much. Nice. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so they research properties right around the country or they yeah. just focus on Queensland? Yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, where to from here? What's your, are you looking to continue to be a rent vesta? Are you wanting to buy your own home to live in? Um, and then obviously starting family one day um, What? or maybe not, I don't know, but <laughs> not going too personal here today, but what's the, the next sort of three to five years for you, do you think? 
So I think what's next for me is I would like to get another residential property under my belt, um, potentially something that could be a battle axe subdivision down the track, maybe cut a little bit off and sell it off or develop it. Um, hopefully before the end of this year, that would be ideal if I can. Um, and then the next one would definitely be a commercial joint venture of some sort. Um, yeah, so awesome. whether that be with family involved or with commercial, you need the banks don't lend as, as heavily um, in terms of percentage wise on commercial deals, generally yeah. speaking. So it probably would be a joint venture with um, a couple of people would be it. So okay. whatever it looks like, cool. um, that would be ideal. Yeah. So for a lot of business owners, they like the idea of buying their own commercial premise to run their business out of. Is, is that something you entertain or your commercial is just non-emotional, go and make some money? Yeah. Um, trying not to copy dad too much, but he's had a lot of success in supermarkets. Um, so I would like something that's got a pretty solid guarantee that that, you know, commercial space is going to be continually let out because that's probably the biggest value in commercial is having a good tenant. Sure. Okay. So I'm sure a lot of listeners are, are taking this in thinking, wow, um, buying commercial space for a supermarket to, to lease, um, what sort of money are we talking to get into something like that? Because you, you mentioned before about deposits too. Um, usually with commercial space, we want 30% deposit, don't we? All the banks do. So that's quite a sizable amount um, as opposed to maybe your, your 5 or 10% in, in uh, residential. Yeah, most definitely. So really, um, that's why that a joint venture with multiple parties so that it's a certain percentage of that overall um, price point. There's no way I could buy a supermarket on my own. Um, but, you know, um, supermarkets are a couple of mil, but if you can divide that up by six to eight parties in a joint venture setting um, who can have certain levels of, of investment in there, um, may, might not all be equal, might be certain percentages for each. Um, that's something that I would really like to explore and be a part of. Okay. Yeah, cool. Um, and, and to have someone like your dad as a, as a mentor through that space, having been and done it and, and been successful at it, um, definitely gives you a kickstart as well, doesn't it? Yeah, most definitely. Mm, awesome. Okay. And principal place of residence, what are your thoughts around that going forward? Uh, I, I speak to a lot of people who have um, varying responses when, I'm asked, when I ask this question, when do you want your principal place of residence? Um, some stay, say never, but undoubtedly in, in that five years time, they all of a sudden want it because they're more entrenched in their local community or they're having kids and they want to know where schools are and things like that. What, what's that look like for you? So, I mean, obviously I walk through properties for a living. I, I would walk through a th over a thousand properties in a year. There has only ever been one property that very recently popped up that I would would have bought. Like if I had the money, I would have bought it. I, I think I'm very hard to please in what I want in a house. And it's actually kind of like, I almost need to consider building maybe, but where I want to live, there's not really any land available. Um, I'm very happy rent vesting. Um, even if I did have kids and wanted some security, I'm still happy rent vesting um, because I, until it doesn't make sense, like until a property really, you know, you're getting up into a thousand to fifteen hundred a week in rental, and really you should be looking at buying it rather than just renting it. Um, I'm quite happy where I am, just renting um, and enjoying that lifestyle and not having to worry about body corporate fees or rates or anything like that of the place I'm living in, someone else can pay that yeah, while, sure. you know, I'm paying for my others. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. No, that's great. Um, so, so there you have it. I think, uh, that the rent vesting journey is, is one that you want to continue to entertain. It's, it's a non-emotional thing. It just gives you flexibility. You can choose where you want to, when want to live and, and not be held down by that particular mortgage or that particular house. Um, it sounds as though you're very much, uh, well, 
if I don't want to live in that particular house, why would I buy it sort of thing um, for, for you to actually live in? So you can, you can choose uh, that every couple of years you go and try somewhere different, I suppose. Yeah, good flexibility, definitely. I think one thing I would make mention of, you know, to people who are considering being a rent vester or are a rent vester, I never really thought I'd have any issues with my tenants. And actually recently I've had a real issue with my tenants and it's something that you do need to factor factor in like you do need to cater for the fact that tenants might not pay their rent or they might do damage to the property beyond what the bond is put down so as much as a lifestyle is great with flexibility and you're you know having someone else pay down your mortgage you do need to be risk assessed in terms of you know will you be okay to cover things when they go wrong I'm actually going out to the property um this weekend to go and check out what the damage truly is, oh, which no. I'm a bit nervous about. Okay. Um, so, there's drawings on the wall. There's been dogs living there that weren't approved and a cat. Um, wow. And the garage door's got a ding in it. So the joys. I'm hoping you've got insurance. I do have insurance. <laughs> I do. I do. So that's going to be a process. But, yeah, just something that I actually never thought would happen because the tenants have always been so good. Yeah. But you can get bad tenants. Um, so just keep that in mind if you are rent vested. Yeah, totally. And and they can change over time, can't they? Like tenant all mm. of a sudden has a new partner or, as you said, gets a gets a dog that you're not aware of. Or um, Yeah, so they can be glowing at the start and, and really be an awesome tenant for you and then things can change almost overnight. So a good property manager is key in that, isn't it? Hundred percent, mm. most definitely. Awesome. Okay, Emily. Anything to finish off on your your journey thus far? It's um, I, I feel very old when I'm interviewing you in terms of your uh, <laughs> the age you bought your properties, the years that they were. Um, when I get onto mine, I'm back into the nineties. But in any case, it's um, yeah. Any any final parting words? I think just generally, I think remember that. Um, your journey is your journey. I think, you know, a lot of people can get caught up on, um, oh, you know, I'm 30 and I don't have this or whatever it might be. But just remember that your wealth journey is yours and um, to not be too worried about where other people are at in theirs. There's plenty of time to create wealth as well. Like you don't need to be wealthy in your 20s and 30s. You, you, that's accumulation phase. You're starting to, to create wealth. You don't need to have made it by then. I think we get a bit caught up on an instantaneous wealth, um, which is just not a thing. So for listeners out there, yeah, if you're just starting your investing journey or maybe you've got one under your belt, keep going um, and don't compare your journey to someone else's along the way. Yeah, no, that that's awesome advice. Um, it's it's not the number of properties. It's it's not even the the total assets. It's what you can control um, and, and not be influenced good or bad by, by someone else. Let them motivate you. But yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a, it's a great tip for everyone listening. So yeah, that's awesome, Emily. Well, um, let's take a break and then we'll reverse the tables. We'll be back in a second. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. We also have a panel of trusted mortgage brokers we can connect you with to get you into your first home, an investment property purchase, or to review your current loan if you don't have a broker. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So, John, I have got the interviewer hat on and you are the interviewee. And I do have some reference points to your property journey, but I do, I loved your question that you asked me and I'm going to, I'm going to reuse it because I actually think it's a good one in terms of your money story to paint the picture of what life looks like for little John when you were, you know, 18 and under, what was that like for you? Yes. Well, interestingly enough, I'm actually back on the family farm as we speak. So uh, my journey started there as, uh, well, mum and dad were business owners running the family farm. But um, I suppose the money journey was, farming was was tough back then. And I think at different times, it's always tough because you're relying on the weather and things out of your control. So we definitely didn't um, grow up with a whole heap of money. And if I had to say good or bad, it was probably a, a, a bad money story to be honest like we never had a lot of it we always had the comment of no we can't afford that or why do we need that sort of thing so that errs on the on the side of bad from my point of view but I, I think um, I, I don't what, what it did for me was it gave me motivation to go and earn my own money to then do something good with it so yeah, it, it was a very good story, but it was uh, that the concept was was a bad one, if that made sense. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get that. Um, and sort of from that, then, like, were you uh, exposed to the idea of you know investing in things such as property and shares younger, or was that sort of a more of a self discovery process? Um, look, I think tinkering around on the farm, you you get creative, and there's a lot of downtime where there's not friends friends around um so you've got a lot of time to to kill so i was i thought i was quite entrepreneurial um growing tomatoes and selling eggs to the local cafe and little things like that when i was 11 12 13 that that gave me some cash injections and and also started working in the uh, shearing shed for for local farmers so helping around um shearing time. So that also gave me some income. So I think from sort of 12, 13, 14, I was always earning my own money. Um, and it wasn't a traditional go and work at Macca's from 15 years onwards type setup. So, uh, yeah, it gave me an appreciation of, of what money was worth, but I, I did always blow it on new bikes or different things that, that I could afford because when mum and dad were saying, no, we can't afford it. My only other option is to go and create the money so I can buy it myself. Um, and I think that's one thing that I'm installing in my kids at the moment is to, to do that. Um, and 
Yeah, so so fast forward to probably me when I was away at uni, I was surrounded by my uncle who's a, a bank manager at Westpac. So he was a massive influence from a, a larger, um, uh, I suppose, investing point of view in terms of assets. He, he said to me, look, the the biggest clients in our that come through our doors are, are people that own real estate or people that own um, agriculture, right? So that was a big mm-hmm. lesson for me. And so when did the sort of light bulb go off from, you know, earning money to buy things that you that you want that mum and dad wouldn't get for you or that couldn't afford for you um, versus I've got money and I can actually do good with this in terms of doing good with investing? Yeah, well, I think like you, when I first started earning full-time dollars, um, that was out of university at age 21 or so, I didn't use it that well then either. So... I was just used to buying things, um, working and trading my time for money from from age twelve or thirteen. So I continued to do that into my early twenties, and it it actually my I would say a lot of my twenties were actually a bit of a waste of money. Um, <laughs> although I started buying assets as soon as I earned money, I think a lot of that a lot of the money was wasted as well. So I would say early thirties I started monitoring my money a lot better, which um, might amaze a lot of listeners because yeah I, I suppose and it's I'm here to say that no one's perfect and and there's always some improving we can be doing and don't be so hard on yourself similar to the, the tips that you gave when I interviewed you yeah and I think you know there's probably plenty of listeners who can relate to that you know at 20s for a lot of people are the fun times and it's the travel and it's the be out with friends and and particularly when you're on starting salaries in a lot of industries and a lot of career um, paths, it's pretty much just enough to cover your living expenses plus your fun. Like there's not yeah. too much um, available to actually invest unless you structure it as your non-negotiable from the get-go mm. and then you sacrifice, you know, having good times and being out and about. But um, I think it's not unreasonable or uncommon for people to start to get a handle on their money in their 30s. Um, but then again, there's no real time frame on it either of, you know, what's normal and what's not these days because everybody's on such different trajectories with things. Yeah. But it's good to have, have context. And because, John, you're only 35, obviously it's relatively new to you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Emily. <laughs> no, but look, I, I think mum and dad weren't telling me what I should be doing with my money. Um, supposedly it's not taught in schools or we don't listen at that stage or we're not ready for, at, at that stage. But also I wasn't surrounded by people that – were watching their money. So I think you're a product of your mm. environment a lot of the time, aren't you? Um, so, yeah. yeah, I think it's you, – you've, you've got to have fun. But if you look back on it, yeah, I probably haven't got any regrets, but I could have saved a lot more than I did. Yeah, most definitely. So tell me, what was your first investment? I, I'm guessing it would have been a property, but maybe not? Well, yeah, I did – I. Actually, the live podcast um, a month or so ago, I, someone asked me that question and it was actually a mob of sheep um, for for those farmers out there. They'd be having a wry smile now. But yeah, I, I knew that my brother could shear them. He, I could put them on his land and I, I would reap the rewards of that. So I think I bought them for $4, sold them for $12 three, three or four months later. So that was a pretty good start when we're talking real dollars. Uh, I did have a managed fund set up similar to you, Emily, at, uh, at an early age, set up by my uncle. But then, yeah, 1999, which sounds a long time ago, uh, that's when I first started full-time 
work uh, and my first property was local in Horsham where I was teaching at the time. Uh, it was a purely a rental property. Uh, I wanted to go down the investing journey. I wasn't fussed where I lived myself, but I knew that I wanted to to buy and, and build a property portfolio. So that was my first one. It was a an old weatherboard for 62000 would you believe? Oh my gosh. Do you still hold that or have you sold that since? No, I actually... I bought that with my sister. We put down a whole three thousand dollars each to buy that property. Um, so a ten percent deposit. It. <laughs> it was positive cash flow, and then three years later, it had doubled in value, um, and we both took our funds um, and uh, both started up separate businesses. Actually, so yeah, we sold wow. that to to basically build my business um, from from scratch, which was uh, awesome. Um, no regrets around that, but. I would say if I was more strategic these days, it may have been a way to keep that property and still have the funds for to build a business. But yeah, as I said, I was young, naive, no one really around me to, to advise me on that stuff. Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Horsham, three years growth, that is incredible growth in that amount of time. Um, and I can't believe a 10% deposit was six grand. I mean, if 10, 10% deposits were six grand these days, everyone would be owning their, their properties. That's just crazy to fathom those numbers when like, you know, the you can't even get a two-bedroom apartment in Melbourne for 600000 these days. Mm. So that's nuts. It's crazy how the property market's gone over time. Yeah. Well, I think what that did teach me though, Emily, like you can easily mm. look at those numbers and say, oh, I'm a rock star. Like how good am I predicting that market when there was absolutely no research done by myself at all? Um, but we've got those sort of results. Uh, so you get, I think we get a lot of false confidence and say, well, property's just going to always go up. Um, if you look mm. historically at that market, it's it's actually doubled every 10 or 11 years. But that portion, that three years was the doubling phase and the other seven or eight years were flat to no growth. So that's the that's the big thing that I took away from from that uh, first purchase was, yeah, it's it's buying at the, the right time in the market um, and letting a time do its thing as well. Most definitely. So obviously from that purchase and, and the sale of that property, um, divided up and both you know, put money into your own, your own business, which is an investment in itself, a great investment. And then what was after that, what came next for you? Yeah, so I moved to Adelaide to start up the business um, with those funds. So I bought a property over there when I, when I first moved there, uh, which was 2008, I believe, 2007. Yeah, so um, that was, I actually built a house over there um, again, an investment property, got some good results in the first couple of years and then bought a block of land as well, which I was going to build on. Um, that's when there was a bit of fork in the road where I started to uh, gain some property mentors around me. So from that time on, I got to understand the property specifics a lot more and loved reading about it, loved understanding it, loved reading success stories in what was the Australian Property Investor magazine. Um, don't know if it's still around these days, but uh, we, we didn't have podcasts. So yeah, I just couldn't get enough of it at that stage. And, um, and then, so I actually sold that block of land because strategically it wasn't going to be the best outcome for me. So this is where you and I are similar. I actually did go and buy in Melton West, which was right next door to Melton oh, South. Did you? 
<laughs> neighbours. Yes. So we were neighbours. Well, maybe not because I'd probably sold it by then. But um, so, yeah, I just thought there was a better strategic market in Melbourne than having two properties in Adelaide. Mm, yeah. And um, do you still have the one in Mountain West? No, I sold that about four years later after some growth, uh, which would have been probably close to the time when you started to buy there probably. So I, I probably should have held on to that. Um, but uh, that's when I transferred my investments into Brisbane and uh, and did a couple of joint ventures in Brisbane, which we still hold today. Um, so yeah, they've performed, or one of them perf- has performed really well. The one of them, the other one's been okay. Um, so that that taught me a lot about the type of property to buy, uh, as opposed to not just the region or the location. Um, you've really got to be specific about what uh, asset type you do buy in a, a particular region. Definitely. Now. Um when did you make the switch from being rent vester to owner? Because I know that you're in the process of building at the moment, aren't you? Yes, we are. So uh, my wife and I moved to the Central Coast uh, 2011, I believe. Uh, we mm-hmm. rent vested for a few years there until we bought our own home in 2014. Uh, however, we knew that was going to be a temporary principal place of residence because we built a duplex and lived in one knowing that it was going to be short term before we actually bedded down and bought our family home for the next 20 years so to speak so uh, we didn't actually buy our own home to live in until 2018 so add that up that's nearly 20 years of of rent vesting um, which (laughs) is quite a long time um but it didn't feel as though it was never a hassle for me to rent. I just it was uh, it was just what I did. I was used to it. Um, I, I, I liked the flexibility of it. Similar to you, just choose where you want to live, who you want to live with, and uh, and and you've you've got no bad debt in your life, and you can just continue to play around with the 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 moving parts of your investment portfolio. I think that's a real eye opener and great for listeners to hear that you know, rent vesting for 20 years, like that actually is a very real possibility. I think there's a stigma attached with rent vesting that it's a short-term solution to get into the market, like do your first one as an investment and then buy your next one as your owner OK. Mm. It's a very common phrase I hear of people, you know, wanting to get into the market, but rent vesting can actually be a long-term strategy, obviously living proof John here, who's, you know, bought his true owner OK in 2018. So what's that, three years ago? Yep. Um, and now- now, are you extending on that property that you bought in 2018 or are you building a new place? We are actually building a new place. We, we bought it as a three-better. We knocked out one wall to make it a two-better, um, did the backyard up and now we're, we're going to actually knock it down next month and, and start building. So, yeah, plans have come out of council and, and ready to go on that. So that was a really uh, a, a big purchase for us in the I suppose um, thinking about where we wanted to spend the next 10 to 15 years, um, mm. bringing up our kids in respect to school zones and, and, and uh, best sort of best street, best suburb, worst house was definitely our model there when we bought that. Um, so it actually was um, full of white ants when we bought it. And a lot of buyers were actually steering clear of it and, uh, and, we knew that, yeah, within three years, it's it, we're going to be knocking it down anyway. So we we thought that we got ourselves a little bit better deal by um, having white ants through the house. So if you want to buy a bargain, 
buy something with white ants and knock it down. There you go. <laughs> so um, where to from here for you? Obviously, you know, this is a big project building um, and, you know, there's a, quite a lot of capital involved with building as well, which, you know, you have to factor into the whole process. You know, what do you foresee once this property is built and it's livable and you're, and you're, you know, happy days in there? What do you think might be next on the cards for you? Yeah, good question. Um, the, the whole model was to buy our own rock when we could could have a low debt on that. So consolidate our portfolio, sell down some, take some cash and, and place a large amount onto that property. So yes, we've, we've been fortunate enough to do that. Uh, we, we still like to continue to, to invest. Um, we've done a few developments in the last few years as well. Um, so just, just point in mind right there for the listeners that we've probably done more investing than when we've had kids um, than when we did prior to having kids. Um, so uh, I talk about a family lifestyle cycle a lot and that how that cycle of uh, wedding, honeymoon, kids, uh, and then finally at the end of it is um, the kids move out. That's probably about a 20-year cycle. So if you're sitting still not doing anything from an investment point of view through that time other than paying down your own home and contributing to super, it's a big chunk of your life that uh, you may have to then play catch up out the other side. So yeah, uh, we really made that decision that we want to continue investing aggressively whilst we've, had, whilst we've got kids and whilst we're still relatively young. Um, so yeah, it'll be... Once that's built, um, pull some equity out and continue to invest. Awesome. Now, any closing remarks? I, I think it's been interesting. I didn't even really know your story. I mean, we, we talk every week on the podcast, but, we, you know, how much do we really know about each other? Um, I think it's been really interesting to learn, you know, your journey. And I, I'm surprised but also impressed that you're a rent vesting for so long. I think that's great. Like, that's inspiring for, for myself even to know that someone like yourself has, has done that and, and look at what you've achieved. Any um, closing advice or comments for, for people who are listening? Yeah, look, I think on that, um, mine wasn't the standard grow up in a suburb and stay there for the next 30 or 40 years. So if, if, I, if I was someone that was probably going to do that, then I would have maybe bought my principal place of residence earlier. I still might not have lived in it. Um, so what I did in Horsham and what I did in Adelaide was buy into those markets but not actually live in them. So I, for, for listeners, I would definitely um, keep that in mind when you're understanding where you're going to spend the next 20 years. And um, I, if I had any regrets around the portfolio, uh, early doors, I would have been a bit more strategic around trying to hold more of my properties for longer as opposed to the mm. natural option of selling them, taking the profits, seeing the dollars and and thinking, oh, I can put them into a better market. But could I have done both would probably be my key takeaway there. Um, answer might have not been no, um, but who knows? You, you, um, you've just got to think about what your options are before you rush in and sell a property. 100%. Well, I've actually thoroughly enjoyed listening to your journey um, and it's great context, you know, for the podcast moving forward too. We love hearing stories and, and hearing stories of our listeners as well and what they're up to in the market, obviously um, across across property, across the nation really. Mm. Um, today has been a slightly longer episode, but I think it's it's good context to know 
what we've both been up to and also um, to share some insights on what's possible as well from two different people. So thank you for, um, if you're still listening, <laughs> thanks for joining for the long if haul. If you're still here, um, <laughs> thank you. If you're still here with us, um, but also please feel free to um, send some comments through or some further questions um, through either the um, My Millennial Money Facebook page or either of our Instagrams um, so that we can answer them on the next show. Mm, absolutely. No, it's been a pleasure, Emily. Thank you for for uh, putting up with my tune for the last 20 minutes. <laughs> I've actually found it very insightful and, and thoroughly enjoyable. I've learnt more about you and about your journey, so it's been, it's been a great episode, and we'll be back with you guys next week. Thank you all. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Taking your property journey to the next level starts with education. That's why we make this podcast, but we've also created online courses to equip you with the knowledge you need to take the next steps. I've created the Solvair Online Academy, open to both first home buyers and seasoned investors, where I share my tips and experience from 20 years in the property space. And I've created the Buying Coach, built from my experience as a buyer's advocate to demystify the confusion around purchasing property, particularly for first home buyers. Follow the links in the show notes to sign up and get get started today. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive, Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, is an authorized representative of Money Sherpa, Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.